Good afternoon, and welcome to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart, and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. We're here this afternoon coming up on our 29th anniversary. Money Talk is a broadcast about the world of financial and investment planning, where you always determine our agenda by calling or texting 512-836-0590. You can listen online right now at newsradioklbj.com, or you can go to SoundCloud. I just did this a few minutes ago. If you go to SoundCloud and put in Carl Stewart, that's S-T-U-A-R-T, it comes right up. If you put in Money Talk, you have to... that's a uh, common name, so you have, it takes you a while to find it. You can go to SoundCloud. That's a free app. Or, of course, newsradioklbj.com. There you can go to Weekend Hosts, see that good-looking Ed Clements, and then me, which is a big disappointment. And you can listen to broadcasts that we've done for a very long time. And this Thursday, after the news at 6 p.m., we will rebroadcast today's show. It's a great idea to call at the beginning of the broadcast when we have all of our lines available, which is the case right now. I take today's calls first and then new texts and then any previous texts that uh, I feel I haven't had the opportunity to answer. So, 512-836-0590. There's an article, you can hear the paper rustling. There was an article, I think, that's important for all of us as savers and investors in yesterday's Wall Street Journal, so I'm going to read it bit by bit because it's a bit long. So it says, here's an upside to persistent inflation. More of your income will be taxed at lower rates next year. The Internal Revenue Service announced its annual inflation adjustments to federal income tax brackets for 2024 on Thursday, an increase that slightly outpaces the current inflation rate. This means some Americans will pay less in taxes, said Jim Young, an accounting professor. The adjustment, based on formulas set out in the tax code, are meant to keep inflation from raising taxes. It's kind of like a high tide lifts all boats, said another CPA. I see that I think I have something. Ah, we have a text. 512-836-0590. Let's see what this says. Hello, Carl. I am curious if and when you think it might be a good time to start investing in bond mutual funds now that interest rates do not look to go up anymore. Thanks, Mark and Round Rock. Well, I happen to think it is a good time. You know, for for the better part of 40 years, we were living with falling interest rates, and we had great returns on bond funds, particularly because you got total return with appreciation as well as, but you did get falling income, but your bond prices and your bond fund net asset values appreciated. However, we got so low on interest rates, and I certainly didn't know what was going to happen, but if you're a regular listener, you know that I became pessimistic about bonds and had a very low allocation to bonds in a balanced portfolio. I think now, with the 10-year Treasury between 45 and 5%, that it actually is a good time to increase your allocation to bonds. First of all, it's the mathematics of bonds. If you buy a bond fund when the 10-year treasury is priced at 1.5% or 2% and interest rates go up, 
they don't have to go up a lot on a percentage, like say they go from two to three. That's a big percentage move and you have significant price risk at that point. But when you start at say five and they go up 100 basis points to six, that's a much smaller percentage move. So there's a lot of data that indicate that the return you're going to get prospectively, the return into the future, has, is very much the yield that, at which you get in. So if you can buy a, a say, core bond fund with a 6 6.5% current income based on the last 12 months' dividends divided by the current price, it's highly likely over time, just based on history, I certainly can't see the future, that you're going to get a 5 to 6% return, which which frankly is better than inflation. And the Fed has said they're going to keep rates high until we get inflation back to 2%. If that in fact occurs, then you have a real return from bonds. So I think it's a, actually a very good time to consider buying bonds and increasing your allocation, Mark. Thanks for your question. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. John, you're on the air. How may I help? Yes, sir. If if I uh, go with a fiduciary and uh, yes. and I lose money, am I still going to have to pay them? Of course. A fee? Yes, of course you are. Yes, because what you're thinking about are what are called performance fees, and they don't allow the performance fees are not something that are allowed with the typical fiduciary. You get performance fees, you get in things like hedge funds and private equity and things like that. But you're not you're, you don't get to uh, determine the fee based on the performance. In other words, if you have a good year and your portfolio is up 15 percent, you don't pay 15 percent more in a fee. And if you have a bad year and you're down 15 percent, you don't pay 15 percent less. It's a it's always based on the value of the assets, John, and not on the performance. Okay. That's, that's a good reason I'm not going to go with them. Thank you. <laughs> I think there's. I think you're, here's your choice. You can be a do-it-yourself investor, which is fine because over my 45-year career, the costs to do it yourself have dropped sharply, and the availability of, of mutual funds and exchange-traded funds has risen broadly. So what I've learned is. If you have the personality and the time and the interest to be your own advisor, then you should. Having said that, if you don't, and obviously a lot of people don't since trillions of dollars are being advised, you have to choose between a fiduciary who receives no transaction-based compensation and she has to act in your interest and put your interest before hers. That's what's called a duty of care. Or you can go with a transaction-based person. That doesn't make the transaction-based person a bad person, but it does change the nature of your business relationship. So I would argue either do it yourself or go with a fiduciary because I think the legal protections are better in a fiduciary relationship. Thank you. You bet. Thanks for calling. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512 512- Eight three six zero five ninety. Where was I on this article? I think this is important. The adjusted base formulas set out in the tax code are meant to keep inflation from raising taxes. The standard deduction and the thresholds for each tax bracket for next year are up 5.4%. That's the second largest adjustment 
in the past three decades after last year's 7.1% increase. The the threshold for the top federal income tax bracket in 2024 will climb by nearly $40,000 next year for a married couple. The 37% income tax rate will apply to income above $731,200 for individuals. The top bracket will be $609,000. Now, this is important. Your effective tax rate will be lower than your top rate. I know if you're a regular listener, you've already figured this out. That is because the first slice of your income is taxed at 10%, the next slice at 12%, and so on. So your effective tax rate is essentially a blended rate. Most people in their heads say, I'm in the 24% bracket and that's my tax rate. But when you're in the 24% bracket, you're not paying 24% on all your income, said Kelly Gillette, a CPA and tax partner at Armenino in Dallas. Knowing the brackets and your marginal tax rate can help with your year-end planning. A married couple with $300,000 of income taking the standard deduction would have a marginal tax rate of 24%, and they would have more than $100,000 left in that bracket before they jump in to the 32% bracket. So, they might consider converting part of a traditional individual retirement account into a Roth IRA if they have little or no investment income, Gillette said, securing that 24% rate for the conversion. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. It's time for me to take a break. Perfect time for you to call or text 512-836-0590. I'll be back. You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ. 590 AM and 99.7 FM. Enjoy the podcast on newsradioklbj.com. Now, here's Carl. Welcome back to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart, and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. We're here this afternoon until 5. When you have a financial or investment planning question, give me a call or a text at 512-836-0590. Here is a text. Carl, can you talk about using credit cards for travel benefits? Well, I'm not an expert on credit cards, but I'm a fan of credit cards provided you pay the balance every month. Because if you don't, interest rates are always high on credit cards, and now they're astronomical because interest rates generally in the economy have risen. If you're paying your credit card off every month and you're getting points, or miles, then I think it's a terrific deal. I, we, we actually, in our family, just had this occur where we use a credit card and we get points. Now, I pay off or we pay off the balance every month. And now we have a big family trip coming up next year and we were purchasing the uh, airplane tickets. And it was very nice to get a big discount, if you will, on the tickets because we had used the credit card for the travel benefits. So I think Just to round it all out, yes, I like that because I like credit cards for the extra benefits provided you pay them off every month. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. Marianne, you're on the air. How may I help? Hi, Carl. Hi. Um, You probably know that I'm a... uh, buyer of stocks and uh, 
and I don't know very much about bonds. Um, okay. You know, I have the basics, but sure. that's not been a part of my portfolio. Even. Right. And I've just <laughs> maybe yeah. steered away. Sure. So this might be a time just uh, to uh, diversify a bit more than I have in the past. Yes. How do I go about buying uh, appropriate yes. bonds? Yes. So th- there's there's several kind of key decisions. The first is that you can buy individual bonds. And when you buy individual bonds, you go to your custodian or broker-dealer. So if you're a do-it-yourself investor, I believe you are, and let's just say, because I'm not, as you know, I'm not recommending, let's just say Schwab is your uh, custodian of your of your assets. They have a bond inventory, and you can go on there and look at individual bonds. So let's talk about the pros and cons of each of these alternatives. Uh, as I've always said here, the benefit of an individual bond is that you know exactly what the income is going to be, and you know when it's going to arrive, and you know when your money comes back at maturity. So that level of certainty is not true of other assets. It's not true of investing in real estate. It's not investing in stocks or stock mutual funds or exchange-traded funds. So there ought to be some comfort in individual bonds. Having said that, uh, it is you don't get bond diversification very much because unless you have millions of dollars, it's hard to be truly diversified uh, across a bond portfolio. So then the question is, should I get an actively managed bond fund or a passive bond fund? So the largest bond fund, it's actually an exchange-traded fund, the symbol is BND, bond, uh, which is the Vanguard total bond market. And it seeks to uh, deliver the return of the most popular bond index, which is the Bloomberg uh, index. You can also buy an exchange-traded fund that is absolutely follows the index. That's called, that's the iShares AG, A-G-G. So they, they're very, very similar in returns. So through yesterday, the year-to-date return on BND was minus 0.47, and the, the return on AGG was minus 0.54. And that's passive uh, investing, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just like if you bought an S&P 500 or a NASDAQ or a total stock market ETF. Or you can buy an actively managed one. I must say I'm perfectly comfortable having a portion of my portfolio for stocks or equities passively and then having some active. I, I guess I've talked to enough bond managers over my career that I think there are some inefficiencies in the bond market. I like giving bond managers the opportunity to buy and sell bonds. I have, and I have full daily liquidity. If I own individual bonds, uh, I, I guess I have liquidity in that I can go back to Schwab or whoever I deal business do business with. But you're going to pay a bit of a markup when you buy them and a markdown when you sell them. And so that can be kind of inefficient. You get broad diversification with a bond fund or an ETF. And you can also select the nature of the fund. So uh, because I don't know anywhere else to go, but uh, for categorization, I go to Morningstar, and they have various categories of bond funds uh, based primarily on their maturity and also on their quality. So you can have a short-term, high-grade bond fund. You can have an intermediate-term fund that they call a core, or you can have an intermediate-term bond fund that they call core plus that takes a little more credit risk. 
They have a category called multi-sector, which gives the bond manager the maximum flexibility as to the maturity or duration of the portfolio and to the credit quality. I like mixing all of those. If I were going to use active management, whether with an advisor or on my own, my current view is that I would have three funds. I would have a short-dated fund, which right now has the highest yield because, or one of the highest yields, because we have this inverted yield curve where short rates are higher. So I'm looking at an actively managed short fund that I prefer, and its year-to-date return is 5.14, which is huge when you consider that the ag, the index, is minus 0.54, but that's because the index has a longer, probably around a seven-year duration, and we have this thing called an inverted yield curve. So I like a short fund and then a core fund that invests in investment-grade bonds, the one I'm looking at is minus 0.30, and then a multi-sector fund, which allows a manager within guardrails to buy higher-yield bonds or international bonds, and the one I'm looking at is plus 3.63. So when I diversify across those three funds, in spite of the fact that the overall Bloomberg Ag is negative for the year, my bond portfolio is positive because I have three different durations and three different strategies. So you come back to this. If I want absolute certainty, I buy individual bonds. If I want active management, I do that in uh, usually a 40-act open-end mutual fund. If I want passive management, meaning I just want to follow an index, I can do that with an exchange-traded fund. They all have their pros and cons. I like the active management myself, Marianne. I certainly appreciate you going over that. That's uh, um, something to work with here yes. to, to, yeah. to kind, kind of learn to do it. But the absolute, um, go the, over that again, what, what's that call it? The, well, you, you buy individual bonds and you get the absolute re- knowledge of when you're going to get your cash income and when you're going to get your par value versus the active management, which is what I like in a mutual fund, frankly. Well, I, I sure appreciate that, and okay. that, the latter sounds uh, like yeah. like what I would fit, <laughs> or it would fit me. Thank you. Okay, thanks for calling. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. Here's a text. Carl, you mentioned fiduciary. How does someone take action if they feel that their interests were compromised? Well, Um, That's a great question. Um, I think you can, first you have to to really determine that you have uh, a solid case because if the person or company with whom you're doing business has laid out in, in print what their investment strategy is, and that would be partly in their, in something called the ADV, that you can go online and see it's a it's a it's a for a not a form a document that a fiduciary is required to put out for the public it's a, you can get that at the SEC website if when you began your relationship with this person they told you what they were going to do particularly helpful if they told you what they were going to do by laying out in black and white what their plan was and you agreed to that. If they laid out their fee schedule, they showed you uh, what they were going to do, and they did that, I don't think you have a case. If, on the other hand, uh, using those same benchmarks, 
they said they were going to do such and such. Uh, they were going to, and and they did the opposite. Uh, then I think you have. Then I think then you have to decide: Do I have enough of a case that it's worth going and hiring somebody to proceed? Because I can do that. Uh, I can first uh, talk to the fiduciary, the firm with which I'm dealing, uh, and if they. Uh, disagree with you and believe that they've acted in your best interest, then it comes down to a kind of a he said, she said kind of situation, just like you would have if you with with your architect or with your CPA or your veterinarian or any other professional servant, you have to decide for a cost-benefit analysis if it's really worth it or not. So to the extent that uh, they've disclosed to you uh, what their investment strategy is and how they're going to implement it. And if they, in fact, followed that, then you're going to have a difficult time. If they did not, uh, and you have the time and the interest and are willing to invest some money uh, with an attorney, then that's how I would do it. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. We're at the bottom of the hour. We have all of our lines available and no new texts coming in. So it's a great time to call or text 512 512- Eight three six zero five ninety. I'll be back. You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ five ninety AM and ninety nine point seven FM. Enjoy the podcast on newsradioklbj.com. Now here's Carl. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. We're here this afternoon until five PM. When you have a question, call or text. 512-836-0590. You may listen online right now at newsradioklbj.com or go there at your convenience and download podcasts of our all of our previous broadcasts. And you can go to SoundCloud and do the same thing. And then this Tuesday after the, after the uh, news, I guess, at 6 p.m., we will rebroadcast today's show, 512-836-0590. Let me get this newspaper out here again and continue with the talk about what's happening in tax brackets rising next year. Not all tax rates get inflation adjustments. The 3.8% tax on investments and wages that kicks in when income reaches $200,000 for individuals and $250,000 for married couples is not adjusted for inflation, for example, so more taxpayers will be hit with that tax. Interest income being higher than it has been in a long time could lead to bigger tax bills for some taxpayers. The $10,000 cap for deducting state and local taxes, known as the SALT break, and the $3,000 limit on capital losses that can be deducted from income are other individual items that are not indexed for inflation. This next one affects a lot of listeners. The standard deduction rises to $14,600 for individuals in tax year 2024, up from $13,850 for this year. For married couples, it's $29,200 for 2024, up from $27,700. The Wall Street Journal says the majority of filers save money by taking the standard deduction instead of itemizing deductions, including deductions for charitable donations and medical expenses. I see we have a call, 512-836-0590. Aaron, you're on the air. How may I help? 
Hi, hi, Carl. Love hi. the show. Thank you. A longtime listener. I Thanks. heard the conversation earlier in the show uh, about uh, treasuries and uh-huh. uh, bonds. Uh-huh. Do you have uh, any opinions, observation, experience about individual investors using the U.S. Treasury Direct website? Uh, I actually, over the years, I remember uh, visiting with people back before there was even a website they would they, they there was there's a fed office in san antonio and they would set up an account there uh and then make a deposit because they could buy you know the the, the treasury auctions uh bills every monday as i recall and uh, they and they uh they did that uh and were quite pleased with it so i'm assuming that th- that this is just uh, an update to that and i see no problem with it whatsoever uh, I think uh, if you if you don't have a relationship with uh, uh, a do-it-yourself broker dealer, uh, that the dealing direct with the treasury would be just fine. The reason I say it like that is that the marketplace is so efficient for treasury securities that uh, if if you're not doing it through uh, a transaction-based uh, advisor. Uh, the markup is essentially virtually nil. So if it's more convenient for you to work through a do-it-yourself broker-dealer or a fiduciary advisor, go ahead. But if you want to deal directly with the Treasury, I haven't talked to anybody uh, recently who's done that, um, but I would be perfectly comfortable with it if I were in your shoes. Appreciate it. Thank you. You bet. Thanks for calling. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text Five one two eight three six zero five ninety. I want to bloviate a little bit more here on capital gains. The income thresholds for paying capital gains tax at various rates are also indexed for inflation. Some taxpayers might want to sell appreciated stock when they can snag a zero percent capital gains tax rate. This this uh, CPA said for twenty twenty four. The zero rate applies to single filers with taxable incomes up to $47,025 and joint filing couples with incomes up to $94,050. So I'm going to stop with that now because I've got something else I want to visit with this afternoon. But don't don't forget, I'll interrupt myself and stop bloviating. But if you'll call or text 512-836-0590. You may remember that last week I talked about uh, in some, mostly what I would call the non-financial considerations when you're dealing with settling an estate, uh, talking about families and interactions uh, and uh, how you might go about making the smoothest, uh, if you will, transition of assets when someone or a couple pass away. And I got a really interesting email from a longtime listener, friend, and client, and she said, Thank you for bringing up this topic. My parents were executors for several estates, and now I'm handling my mom's estate. The only one that went smoothly was when my grandmother passed, and that's just because my mother was an only child. The one I'm dealing with is even more difficult than the ones my parents handled, or maybe it just seems that way because this is my problem and the others were theirs. I'm familiar with quite a few estate resolutions, and as the article says, and this is the article I was reading last week, most have been difficult. 
I'm not aware of many sibling relationships that were not damaged or destroyed in the process, and that is sad. Our sons and daughters-in-law have good relationships among themselves, and I thought this is a really good comment. And the best legacy I can think of is for those relationships to survive the disposition of our estates. Years ago, I read a book about how childhood relationships often resurface upon the death of the parents. So, for example, the one who always was the bossy one assumes that role. The peacemaker tries to, quote, help, unquote. The one who refused to assume responsibility acts out again. All this often is accompanied by statements that start with, quote, you always. And then, of course, there's the introduction of the in-laws, which brings in further complications. Tough stuff. It's time for our annual checkup, she said. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm learning uh, all about this. Uh, I'm going to be meeting this week uh, with a good friend uh, who does a lot of work along this area. My colleague Lindsay and I are going to talk with her about a family meeting and how to structure a family meeting. I think that really, really is important. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. I find this interesting uh, because I read today's uh, Wall Street Journal. I also read today's Barron's, and uh, I don't see any mention of this, and yet I read uh, after the close of business yesterday that Moody's Investor Service cut the outlook on the U.S. government rating to negative from stable. They still kept its top rating at AAA. Uh, And as you probably follow the news, we're looking at the possibility of another government shutdown coming quickly. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. I'm going to take a break. We're running out of time this afternoon. If you've got a question, call or text 512-836-0590. Stick around for the final segment of Money Talk. You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ, 590 AM and 99.7 FM. Enjoy the podcast on NewsRadioKLBJ.com. Now, here's Carl. Welcome back to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart, and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. When you have a question, call or text 512-836-0590. Here's a text. Carl, in your opinion... What are the pros and cons of individual municipal bonds versus funds? So I think, first of all, let's talk about municipal bonds. What are the attractive features of municipal bonds? One is that the interest income is not subject to federal income tax. And if you're a Texas resident, there is no state income tax. So and in high tax states, uh, say, for example, California and New York, there are actually bonds issued that can be doubly tax-exempt from both the federal government and the state government. And even in New York City, which has its own tax, there can even be triple tax-exempt. Now, this doesn't come for free. So the yield, the, no, the, the nominal yield before tax considerations will be lower because you have to take into account you're not going to be paying taxes. So if you were motivated primarily by tax considerations, you need to make sure that you're in a high enough tax bracket to justify the purchase of these. 
And I'm using this year's tax brackets because that's what I still have in front of me. So, for example, to be in the 32% bracket, if you're a single taxpayer, you have to make more than 364000 And if you're married, finally, jointly, over 462000 And that may not be enough. You may need to be in the 35% bracket, where if you're married, single, it's 462 and above. And if and if you are married, I beg your pardon. That's uh, is two thirty one. Married is four sixty two. So you, so you want to make sure if your primary motivation is the avoidance of federal income tax that you're in a high enough bracket because you need to take the the anticipated yield and apply your tax to your marginal tax bracket to it. So. That's how you think about that. So you say, what would I get in a taxable bond versus a tax-exempt bond after I pay my taxes on the taxable bond? And if the yield on the tax-exempt is higher, well, that's a pretty good reason to consider it. Now, you, the same thing I can be, say as I talked about earlier. You can buy individual municipal bonds. And municipal bonds have a terrific, terrific record of not failing. And there are a couple of reasons for this. The one is that these bonds were approved by, presumably, the, by a bond election, a school bond election, let's just say. We've had several of those here uh, very recently in Central Texas. And, uh, and as a result, uh, the people who issue that have a fundamental reason to pay that off. There's very little failure. Uh, because there's very little bankruptcy in the public market. And in Texas, for example, it's my understanding that if the Austin Independent School District or the Lake Travis or the Kyle or whatever issue these bonds, they have to pay the interest on a timely basis before they can pay the staff and the school teachers. So that's a pretty, shall we say, uh, comfortable uh, blanket of of comfort that you're going to that you're going to get your money, so the failure rate is quite low. When they fail, typically, based on on my reading and history, they tend to be the more speculative grade. For example, uh, hospitals could uh, nonprofit hospitals could issue bonds, and there's been a real consolidation uh, with a lot of small towns and rural areas losing their hospitals. Uh, and they just they just don't make enough revenue to provide the service. It's sad but true, and I'm guessing that some of those hospitals had bonds that failed. We have a special situation uh, in Texas where bonds can be guaranteed by the permanent school fund or the permanent university fund, and that means that there's a pool of capital behind the school district, for example, to make sure the bonds get paid. There are revenue bonds which are tied to specific uh, entities. So there might be a revenue bond sold to uh, add on to, say, the Dallas-Fort Worth airport. And if you own that bond, it's revenue from that particular concourse or that coming from the airlines who pay fees to the, to the airport uh, that back up those bonds. Now, I've sat at the bond trading desk with uh, bond mutual fund traders and I've become away extremely impressed. Uh, they're looking throughout the day at offerings in the bond market, and they're looking at yields down to three and four points to the right of the decimal point. 
Also, what they're looking for are what they call cheap bonds. And what they mean by that is they look, let's say they're looking in the seven to eight year maturity range and they're looking at various bonds and they're looking for bonds of comparable credit quality that are trading cheaper than other bonds. Or they're, they're reading the offering circular of the bond that when it was issued and they believe they understand the bond and they think it's selling below at the price of other bonds and hence a higher yield and they believe that that's not efficient. It's a little bit like I was talking with Marianne about the efficiency of the bond market and I was referring there really even though I didn't say it to the corporate bond market. So I like um, municipal bond funds. The other issue of course is liquidity. As I said to Marianne, the benefit of buying a municipal bond, besides the interest being tax-exempt from federal income tax, is you know exactly what the cash flow is going to be. It's going to come every six months, and you know when the bond's going to mature. But you can't, if you buy a $25,000 bond, it's going to be very hard. You say you want to raise $5,000. That's going to be a really inefficient and expensive trade for you. If you put the same $25,000 in a municipal bond fund and you decide for whatever reason that you want to raise $5,000, you simply sell $5,000 at net asset value of that fund to raise it. So I think there's some pros to the actual bond funds versus the municipals. Thanks for the question. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. Let me get through the rest of this article because I think it's important. This is on estates and gifts. The federal estate tax exclusion amount, how much an individual can shelter from estate taxes, is $13.61 million for 2024, and that's up from $12.92 million this year. Individuals can make lifetime gifts, that's outright or in irrevocable trusts, up to that amount without incurring federal, estate, or gift tax. The, the giver owes tax only if the amount goes over the threshold. A separate annual limit on tax-free gifts is $18,000 for next year, and that's up from 17000 this year. And these gifts don't count towards the lifetime maximum, and neither the gift giver nor the receiver is taxed. So I get this question fairly frequently, is how much can I give to my grandkids and not incur a gift tax liability? The one answer is next this year $17,000, next year is 18000 But you could also use what is called the lifetime exemption, uh, because you're not, if, particularly if you're not going to have a taxable estate uh, among thir- above 13.6, or if you're married and you have a properly drafted will above about $27 million. All right. Wealthy individuals typically make annual gifts, and many are considering large gifts because the estate tax exemption is set to drop to about $7 million when the Trump tax cuts expire at year-end 2025, said a person who's the chief fiduciary officer at Northern Trust. She said, some clients want to see what the political wins are before they pull the trigger. In any case, it is crucial to do financial modeling to make sure you can afford to make gifts and pay any taxes due. Now, retirement accounts, and this is the last of the article. Inflation adjustments apply to retirement account limits, too. And the IRS announced those last week. 
the 2024 contribution limit for 401ks and similar workplace plans is 23000 That's up $500 from this year, plus 7500 for those 50 and older. And the contribution limit for individual retirement accounts for 2024 is $7,000, up from 6500 plus $1,000 for those 50 and over. So we'll no doubt be getting questions about this as we go along, but I wanted to share that with you. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Well, we're down to the last four minutes, so I'm not going to ask you to call or text. I'm going to cover something here that I've been reading about a lot lately, and we may talk about this again in the weeks to come, and it has a fancy name, tax loss harvesting. What does it mean? Well, last year was a lousy year, it's a scientific term, for stocks and bonds. Uh, And it's entirely plausible that in your own personal accounts, we're not talking about your IRA, your 401k, in your own personal account, what we call a taxable account, it's entirely possible that you have mutual funds or exchange-traded funds with a loss. That's That's enhanced by the fact that if you've owned it and you reinvested the dividends, and if it paid capital gains, reinvested the dividends and capital gains, that has increased your cost basis. So you might have made, let's say, a $50,000 investment in a bond fund at the beginning of 2022 and had maybe $3,000 of dividends reinvested, and now your cost basis is $53,000. That's called your adjusted basis. And maybe it's only worth $48,000 if you sell it. So you do that because of liquidity. You sell that bond fund and you take advantage of that capital loss. You can take that capital loss and apply it towards any other realized capital gains this year, and you can carry, as I mentioned earlier, up to $3,000 of that last forward into future years. Now, what, if that, what does that do to your portfolio? Well, it takes it out of balance. And if you're a regular listener, you know that just drives me crazy because asset allocation is the single biggest determinant of risk and return. So what you want to do is you want to find something that's similar uh, because you have to be very careful to, to avoid any kind of problem with the IRS by selling a fund and buying something that's virtually identical to it. But if you can buy a fund that meets your investment objective, then you can still retain your asset allocation because you have to be aware of what's called the wash sale rule, and you can't buy your original fund back for 31 days. Then if you decide, I really prefer that fund that I sold earlier, then you can buy it back, and you've captured the loss, and you can use it for against other gains or for future tax planning. This doesn't occur every year, of course, but because of the poor returns we had in stocks and bonds last year, it's possible that that could happen, and you may want to take uh, take a look at that. I think it's a good idea. The other thing you're going to have to remember is we have coming up here, typically in December, we have mutual funds which are paying out any realized capital gains. And you want to know what those are. If you're in a regular purchasing model and you're buying funds, let's say, every month, you probably ought to look at the fund uh, website to see if they anticipate a sizable gain. I would call a sizable gain maybe 5% or more of net asset value because if it is, you may want to postpone that December purchase and maybe even that November purchase. Well, we're out of time. 
A lot of fun this afternoon. I want to thank Patrick for doing his usual terrific stand-in job. I want to thank you for listening and remind you that next Saturday, after the news at 4, be sure and tune in to Money Talk.